Welcome to Freed Up. This is the podcast space where life feels lighter. You know, sometimes life can have us feeling worn out and weighed down, locked up and left out, or just simply looking for more. And if that sounds like you, then you are in the right place. I hope you know that you can live freed up and not fed up. I'm your host, Tina Robertson, and today is our second segment on trauma. We're talking about treatment today. We're talking about the different interventions that we use in therapeutic process. And we're going to cover a very important topic, which is shame. Shame is a big feature of trauma. Our expert panel is back and they're going to dive into this very shortly. So make sure you get situated and get your good listening ear on this one. y'all let's talk treatment let's talk okay we've talked all this stuff about trauma and actually we talk about trauma in part because it really is one of those areas that could be at the base of a lot of mental health issues that people present within therapy and so that's another why for why we really want to cover this for our audiences because sometimes things can look like one mental health issue and they really may not be that they may actually be trauma at work and so, um, so when our clinicians or, or therapists are talking to us about, hey, we're digging to see if trauma's there, what do we do to treat trauma? So I'm going to bat to Gabby first on this one. How do we go towards trauma? How do we deal with anxiety and depression? What are some of the tools and strategies you use? You know, most of the time I have patients that come in with a lot of insight and they say, this is what I want to work on a lot of the times, right? And I think about it or I explain it to them kind of like the the game Jenga, uh-huh. right? that if we were to pull out a wooden piece that wasn't ready to be pulled out easily, it can come down. So counseling treatment really is about building a lot of support because if we think of kind of like a table that's stable, Somewhere along the way, something got off balance and our patients and including ourselves or our clients have found a way to kind of prop up that table, whether it is through addiction or or relationships or different disorders that depression or anxiety is another way of coping. It's, it's a sign that there is your system has exhausted a coping, a defense mechanism, and now it's speaking to you. We little by little begin to build up that Jenga tower so strong that when we do work on pulling out that one piece or those pieces, we can build on top of that. I was just thinking of the vision. I'm thinking, wow, that's so powerful because what you're speaking to really is that sometimes things get, that can seem problematic to us might actually be resilience shining through. It's our way of showing that we're surviving and we're doing it the best way that we know how, even though it may not be the healthiest way. That's that's right. And I call those protectors, right? Mm-hmm. Our anxiety. You know, a lot of the times we want to get rid of our protectors 
when our protectors are there for a reason until we can gain the trust of that protector to show the wisdom um, behind it and show us what it is protecting. Mm-hmm. Once we are able to heal that, that anxiety, that depression, that protector no longer needs to be as intense. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it really is kind of like a dynamic. I mean, when I think about it, I think about it kind of like a a triangle. And most of the time, what it's protecting at the core of it is some wounding that came through shame. Mm -hmm. And as we're starting to heal the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD, there is also another protector that's critical that doesn't want the anxiety and the depression and the PTSD to, to go away. And we're really caught in this triangle most of the time of it's protecting the shame, but here is, they're almost fighting for the attention, whether it's the critical voice or this voice of anxiety or this this voice of, of having depressive symptoms. So I think of the four R's and this is how I work in my practice. The first one is recognize. And that's what we've been talking about in in part one. We talked about what are the symptoms? What are some of the things? Robin and Melissa did a really good job of laying it out for us. And the first star is we have to recognize. Mm -hmm. The second one is we have to reconnect. And this is where I would like to go in a little deeper. We have to reconnect with these protectors because most of us, don't like these protectors, right? We want to get rid of them. We want them out of our lives, whether it's the addiction or it's the anxiety or the depression. But when we connect with them, and that's why the therapeutic alliance is so powerful, when we extend acceptance and compassion and understand that they're there protecting us and they got developed at some point in our life, whether it was a young age and they're stuck in that age, that this is how they learn to dissociate and protect us. This is how they learn to um, be shy and quiet and protect us. This is how they learn people please and protect us. So we befriend those and we begin to extend, like I said, a lot of compassion and acceptance and we reconnect with that. Then we go through to our third R, which is repair. And this is when we gain the trust of our protectors. It's not only about, and I'll be honest with you, most therapists want to do behavior modification and stop there. I'm saying that is just halfway done. Mm -hmm. We have to get to the root of things. Otherwise, it's just another, it's just a matter of time before it shows up. Uh, So a metaphor could be, you know, you have a rose bush and it's beautiful, but there's this rose that just keeps wilting. So we can do one, the therapist can go in there and teach the client how to cut it and instantly through behavior modification, see a change. But it's just a matter of time before the next season of their lives come. Mm-hmm. And if we get the root of that, we'll see it in the following spring. Yeah. So we do repair through healing. And then the last star is restoration. And I I watch HGTV a lot (laughs) when I can. And I really think it's beautiful when we think about restoring, because just like a a house that's run down that nobody wants or, or that, you know, when we think of that and we see how they restore it. And what I love about the idea of restoration 
is that it takes it to a better place than it originally was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we use all of our life experiences to be able to restore us to a fuller, better potential of who we're meant to be and how we're able to shine and serve in this world. You know, just listening to all of that, if um, if I'm sitting out there thinking, man, should I go to therapy? I'm thinking absolutely because I want to be better than I was before. And that process is possible. That's the hope of therapeutic work. So Gabby, thanks for sharing uh, that detail, the four R's. Robin, I'm going to come to you um, next and I'm going to talk about EMDR because that is a, um, that's a, an intervention, a modality that we use specifically for work with trauma. Um, and then Melissa, I'm going to back over to you after that, because I want you to talk a little bit about what you do specifically with children and adolescents. That's important. And we'll talk a little bit about play therapy um, as well. So Robin, help us understand EMDR. Tell us what EMDR is today. Somebody, I was talking to somebody today and they said EMRD. And I was like, wait, I think there's some letters that are kind of mixed up with that, but it's at least they knew that that was something that they wanted to try. <laughs> yes. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So I always tell, the way I explain this to my clients is that if you've ever noticed when somebody's asleep, you can see their eye move, eyeballs move back and forth under their eyelids. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the brain is doing a lot of work, processing everything that it experienced during the day, Um rebuilding itself. We probably do spend a lot of energy on our brains when we're asleep. So what we do with EMDR is we use the eye movement side to side to help process trauma. Mm -hmm. EMDR was, it sounds really crazy, which is a good thing because since it sounds kooky, there's been a whole lot of research and the VA uses it. The, um, NHA uses it. Everybody says it's okay. It's good. It works. So that's a good thing. Okay. So originally it was used for single event trauma. So that means as a grown up or a kid, you had, because you can use it for kids too, you had one traumatic, big T traumatic event. Um, early on when I was used first training, I used it with a guy who had an accident, which was very traumatic. He did not have any other trauma in his background. And it was just like magic. It went so fast. Mm -hmm. When it comes to complex trauma, it doesn't work that fast because we have to, like I said, we got to heal the nervous system. Mm -hmm. We have to heal those parts that um, Gabby was talking about earlier. And there's a lot more pieces to the Jenga tower. There's a lot more structural work that needs to be done before we get there. So it is, it has a lot of good things. We don't have to talk in great detail about what you experienced because your brain knows what it was. You don't have to tell me every detail Mm -hmm. for it to get the benefit and process. EMDR also uses what is called the Adaptive Information Processing, AIP. And so 
the theory is that our brain can go from a maladaptive thought, such as it was my fault, Mm -hmm. I'm shameful, I'm bad, I'm worthless. And over time with processing, you can hear as you're doing it, you can hear the client work towards saying, oh, wait, I did the best I could mm-hmm. because their brain is generating more adaptive material as you process along. So they're like, oh, wait, I was just a kid. I, that, you know, that wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they get to wait. I'm fine just as I am. And so when you get that piece taken care of, you get that positive thought, I'm fine just as I am, or I'm wonderful or whatever it is. And you get them to feel that. Another piece that Gabby was talking about, the brain doesn't know if something is really happening right now. If we can install using the eye movements, that positive thought and feeling in the body, we take, then the next step would be to work on the body sensation. So like, oh, if I say, what about this car wreck? And when you think of that, what do you feel in your body? Oh, I get a little tense. You know, I squeeze, I make a fist. I get a little tense in my hands. So we work on the eye movements until they're like, oh yeah, there's no tension anymore when I think about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm fine just as I am. So That's how EMDR works. Yeah, I actually, so Robin, um, I did an EMDR session with you and um, was able to experience a bit of release in a particular area that I shared with you. So I've actually sat through that and I always offer up the opportunity for any listeners to email me. And of course, I always have our email in the um, episode description. So if you want to reach out and find out any additional detail about how that experience actually goes, but it's pretty cool. It's amazing to think that your eye movement from side to side can really help to unlodge some of the trauma um, that you've experienced. But I always say that's just the way that God created our bodies and he created our bodies to heal themselves in many respects. Sometimes we have to get support in that. Um, But I love the EMDR process. It's been highly successful. I do want to say to the listeners that it is something that is research-based. There is what we call evidence behind it. So it's not something that somebody decided one day that they were going to try in the kitchen and put together some different fluids and something and shake it up and see what came out. It actually is something that's been Um, tried on several clients over um, the course of years. So Robin, thanks for sharing that. Melissa, talk a little bit about the process of, oh, Robin's going to have, yeah. I just want to say that if someone is thinking about going to therapy for EMDR, if, especially if you have complex trauma, make sure that you go to somebody who is trained, you want to see that they had all the training (laughs) and, you know, especially if it's complex trauma, somebody who's certified, um, you can find them on the website, indria.org, emdria.org. But you don't want somebody who just read the book working on you and your complex trauma. No, I'm glad you added that because, you know, that's great direction and insight that there are people who are EMDR knowledgeable. Um, and they may say that on their practice information. Um, but people who are 
EMDR certified are people who have had intensive and extensive opportunities to work with clients in this space. And because complex trauma, again, is just a reminder of what Robin talked about in the first segment, is something that is um, relates to trauma that's happened over the course of a lifetime. So there are multiple experiences that have happened, and that takes a little bit more nuance and therapeutic time to really work through. So that's important. So thanks for adding that, Robin. So Melissa, talk a little bit about what you do in therapy with children and adults. Talk a little bit about play therapy and what that will look like if someone wants to take a child to therapy who's experienced some really difficult experiences. So definitely, um, I am not certified in EMDR, so um, but EMDR can be adapted with the right um, therapist to um, work with children and teenagers. My approach right now, I use trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and very much like what Gabby was talking about, um, it's very, you focus in the beginning of psychoeducation, so lots of focus on just normalizing those symptoms um, and letting the client know that this is a common reaction to a traumatic event um, and building up those um, relaxation and those coping skills, looking at how our thoughts are connected to our behaviors and our feelings and making sure that we look at those and then diving into, you wanna build up those skills and then dive into the trauma. And typically we find that Trauma has different moments that stand out that are most distressing to the children or to the teenagers. And so we're going to dive deep into those particular moments um, using those coping skills that we learned in the beginning to talk about the um, trauma and then go into a phase where we look at any distorted thoughts that are coming out of the trauma and really practicing to plan for the future and what kind of lessons have been learned from this process that can be applied in the future. Um, thing I like about trauma-focused CBT is that it incorporates the parents or caregivers as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if the child or teenager leaves therapy knowing that, okay, I can talk to my mom, dad, grandma, whoever it is in the future, I can bring it up because I had this moment of time where we did talk about it um, in a safe place and now they can handle it because that's what you hear from a lot of children and teenagers. They are terrified to talk about it to the grownups in their uh, life because mm -hmm. they don't want to hurt them. And yeah. they don't know if those adults can handle what they have to say. So it's a different approach, but um, it's, effective in working with children and teens. And there's an adult version of it called cognitive processing therapy. And so, yeah, different approaches. And that's important. It's a, a lot of different modalities, a lot of different approaches that work for different people. And sometimes as therapists will try one thing and it may not suit the client and we have to try and pull in our toolbox and pull something else out. So I also want to just, um, 
highlight the fact you talked about cycle education. So I want to just kind of clarify what that is for the listeners, that that's really giving you the information you need about the area of struggle that you may have. So it's just educating you on the particular mental health issue. Um, And that's done in different ways. It might be literature that you're giving, or it might be, hey, watch this video about this. We want you just to understand before we get into the actual work what we're going to do a little bit more about that issue so you feel more comfortable going into the process. So that's really what psychoeducation is. Melissa, I want you to talk a little bit about play therapy and what that looks like. And I know you do play therapy. And so can you share a little bit about that for parents who may be thinking about taking their kids? Sure. So with play therapy, um, there's registered play therapists who are trained and meet all the criteria. And then there's a lot of therapists who incorporate play into their therapy approach, primarily with young children and school-age children. Um, Not so much the teenage preteen population, but with the younger children. And the concept is children's way of communicating is through their play. And so it's taking all these adult concepts that we've talked about and putting it in their language. And it gives them a sense of control because one thing that we know about trauma is that children often feel out of control and have no power. And putting it in some, in a miniature form, they get that control and they feel empowered and they can process it. And it is really amazing. You may have a child, it would be so hard for them to talk about what happened, but they could create a whole scene. Um, I had one client who he's probably in the third or fourth grade. He grew up in domestic violence. He actually only saw one domestic violence incident. Um, His mother had protected him from the other situations. He came in and he didn't want to play in the sandbox. He didn't want to play with the other figures. He wanted to draw. And so he drew different snapshots of what he remembered from this night. And he could tell you the first day he walked in my office, he like took a deep breath, told the entire story of what happened and then stopped when he was done. He took another breath and it's like, okay, we got to slow this down mm-hmm. and took that story and broke it down. And he drew pictures and, Towards the end, he was more empowered and he knew he felt safe and he shared that with his mom. And she said in session, she's like, I had no idea you remembered all of this detail. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was so powerful to see that and that he felt safe enough to share that with her. That little boy then proceeded to ask if I could go join he and his mom for ice cream. (laughs) Afterwards, which I took as a really big compliment um, from an eight-year-old boy, but, and then of course explained to him how I had a license to do counseling and all of that, but um, you have to meet the client where they're at and with Mm -hmm. children, you got to incorporate the toys and drawing and things like that. So what do you think is the youngest age that you would see a client? Because I know that's a question I've received before as well. So my youngest, I have seen some four-year-olds um, in the past. I had some parents come in and we would see three or four and the three-year-old, unless they were almost four, 
and pretty advanced, I'd say no, focus on the parent. Um, but usually five was my cutoff. Okay. So. You know, some folks may just be wondering, hey, well, what about the younger age groups? And that's where we really have the adult mm-hmm. um, understand how to support those kiddos. One thing I do want to say is that I would always tell parents that when they, when the children get into a different developmental stage, some issues might come up again, and it's perfectly normal to go back to therapy. So I saw several clients who I saw in the third or fourth grade, then I may have seen them in eighth grade. And then some of them I saw senior year or beyond um, Mm. as well, because not that anything new necessarily happened, but they just thought about the childhood event in different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so good that they know that they could go back for that Mm -hmm. support and that work. That's important too. Definitely. So we're wrapping up here, but I don't want to close out unless we really just have a a short conversation about this thing that keeps coming up as it relates to trauma. And that is shame. That's a big topic. We haven't covered it in detail here on freed up yet. I want to have a whole episode on it, but can you guys both just speak to, because Gabby had to, um, to leave us for a little bit, but she gave us such a great body of wisdom and she really brought up this shame piece for us. So can you both just kind of talk a little bit about how do you um, see shame in your clients? What does it look like? And um, I know you've already shared about some of your modalities, but are there specific interventions or tools that you use to really address shame in therapeutic process? Robin, I'll go to you first. Okay. So I think shame shows up well, I don't think I've had a client where shame doesn't show up. Yeah. And usually because I work with people with complex trauma generally, it starts at a very early age because I think Melissa will back me up on this. Kids think that the world revolves around them and they're responsible for everything. Mm-hmm. And so at a very early age, they think they caused things to happen. Mm-hmm. I caused mom and dad to fight because I'm bad. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if all these bad things are going on around you, then you must be a really horrible person because you have this control and power. And once the little brain gets that instilled, it's really hard to get it to move. Mm-hmm. So I use a lot, even though I'm EMDR, I use a lot of uh, cognitive therapy as well. My favorite go-to is, well, if this was your best friend, would you think they were responsible? Or if this was your kid, Mm -hmm. would you go, well, you really screwed up. You're responsible for all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, no, no, of course not. There's no way. They They were just a kid. They couldn't have known. They had no control over that. Like, so then why are you responsible when you Mm -hmm. were a kid? So it takes a lot of that. It takes a lot of other things. It takes a lot of replacing positive thoughts Mm -hmm. um, to replace those negatives um, and building up things that they're proud of. You know, what are your accomplishments? What are you proud of? Let's talk about those so that because we can't just unplug the shame. We have to have something else to fill that space, just like the Jenga tower. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Melissa, what would you add to that? 
this could, like you said, this could be a whole nother episode. I think, um, of course, I'm going to mention Brene Brown because mm-hmm. I feel like she's the queen of fame. But she does a good job of kind of distinguishing like the difference between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt is like, oh, I did something wrong where shame is I am wrong. Yes. Um, and so I think that, yeah, you see that a lot in the ch- in children and in teens. And um, yeah, it's a lot of cognitive stuff that you're going through and finding that evidence for them to prove that the shame we need to have the compassion and I think that's another topic to talk about too is the idea of self-compassion I feel like that's been a really big topic lately yes and the shame can't live if you're having some compassion for yourself so no both so good and I think um you know for adults who are still identifying those places and spaces when they were children, where that started to evolve. And we're, we're going to have a, a, an extension on trauma and move to attachment. That's going to be um, after these episodes. So I'm really looking forward to that because a lot of that, and Robin kind of brought that up earlier, that some of that, those shame pieces start even in the attachment um, phases. And so having those adults going back to and and determining what part of themselves feel shameful because they may feel good about themselves in some areas, but then there's a shame that's there. So it's doing that parts work and going back and dealing with that piece. And what would you say to that seven-year-old child and really understanding, like Robin said, you weren't responsible for that and being able to lift them up out of that place. Um, So that shame work is so important. So you guys, we have covered so much in two episodes. And of course, this conversation about trauma could actually go on and on and on because for one, we're still learning through research so much about it. Um, The neuroscience is a really big, important piece. And so I want to say to the listeners, if you're in therapeutic process and that's not coming up, you need to ask your therapist about that and have them help you walk through the educational pieces on the brain-body connection as it relates to trauma. It has a That will do a lot for lifting you up out of shame because sometimes people feel like their behaviors mean that they are bad. And a lot of our behaviors are a result of traumatic experiences. And so we need to understand how the brain and body connects with that. So there's a lot we could talk about but I'm super excited to thank our panelists that were here. And I want them to know that this won't be the last time that they'll be on Freed Up. They're going to be kind of like my resident panelist experts that will come back to on different topics. And when we talk about shame, we'll have to have them come back. So y'all, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate you. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, Tina. Thanks, y'all. Wow. So look at all we've covered in the last two episodes. I hope that you feel more informed. Maybe you heard something that allows you to act on a next step as it relates to potentially a trauma experience you've had in your life. Of course, if you have any questions, you know you can reach out to Freed Up for that support. Also know that in the description of the episode, you'll find some resources that you can tap into that might assist you in some of your decision-making or thinking about this subject matter. And finally, we are closing out a very important commemorative month in our year, Black History Month. 
Know that Black history is every day, all year long. But since we are in this mode of celebrating, I want to leave us with this quote from Ralph Ellison. When I discover who I am, I'll be free. We are in this process of discovering who we are and becoming freed up. So know that you don't walk this path alone. I'm walking right alongside you, along with the rest of our freed up friends and family. Remember this, God loves you. I love you. And make sure you take care of you.